This is a recording of David Hutchinson speaking about cannabis at the Sunday, February 21st, 2016 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. As she said, my name is uh, David Hutchinson. She said I'm from Cannabis Science. I'm not from a business. I'm a, I act as a consultant now, and I'm uh, assisting a number of people uh, from the medical community and research. I'm involved with lots of different things. Um, you'll understand a little more as I go through. I should just point out there will be no samples handed out. Let's just see everybody leave that mass now. Um, I have been here um, for a couple of years, but uh, my heart sits with uh, the humanists. Uh, I just listened to a very interesting show on the radio. I don't think anybody else did. The guy talking from Austin Globe talking about the movie Spotlight, and uh, my heart sits with that because I come from a theological background. I was indoctrinated into that until I was about 13, but uh, I'm a long way from that now. Okay, I'll start off with this. Um, what I intend to do is run through this slide. In this format, this is the first time I've ever presented this. Um, I'll run through, and when I get to what I consider to be a natural break, uh, we can either do the questions and answers then, or if you want another five minutes, which is specifically about science and research that's going on, I'm going to add that in. I can make that, this, that choice there. Um, I would like to thank Ulrich, and I'd also like to thank uh, Ian. Thank you for... Uh, here and thank you for Joanne for welcoming me here this morning. My focus today is going to be uh, a little on the history, medical impacts, uh, opinions, and methods of administration of cannabis. Um, this is not a focus on uh, legality, uh, and so I'm going to particularly be looking at the medical applications, although that might come up in the conversation. There will be a couple of mentions of legalization. And uh, we can talk about that in question and answer. I'm quite happy to tell you that. Take those questions. At the front of the uh, room here, I've got a number of publications, books, and magazines. Uh, you can't, again, you can't take those away. They're from my personal collection. But if anybody wants to look at more, they're ones that I would personally recommend. Uh, a number of others are home on the bookshelf that I did not bring in. So these are the ones I specifically thought might be of use to you. Um, Joanne just pointed out this is one of my one of my. Uh, one of my favourite quotes from Leonardo, saying that the three groups of people, those that see, those that don't see, those that see when they're shown, and those who do not see. Um, and I agree with Joanne, it's something I think there should be a fourth one on there, those that will not see. As I said, I'm going to focus on the medical benefits and not the legality. By the way, can anybody see properly at the back, or do you need the lights dropped to the front here? Not dropping, okay. I was saying to Ian, it's a strange thing, it's a shame the screen isn't over here because the room, you're all over there, and I'm over here on the screen, it seems like the screen. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Um, just a quick mention on the use of the word cannabis or marijuana, and so in one or two different ways. The correct botanical name for this plant is cannabis, it is cannabis sativa. Um, the word marijuana spelled with a J was introduced by Henry Anselm in the States in the 1930s. It's a name very much rooted in um, racism and the prohibition of the product. When the 
tried to uh, actually achieve prohibition in 1937. They couldn't use the word cannabis because it's such a widely known term. It would have been a bit like now saying they were going to ban Tylenol. Everybody would know what Tylenol is. Everybody knew what cannabis was. So they came up with a new word which sounded much scarier. They imported it from Mexico, marijuana, or Mary Jane. Um, I hope you'll only refer to it today as cannabis because I think it's something that we should, we should do, not be referring it to as marijuana. If anybody's interested to understand more about the, the stigma that is associated with this, particularly as a medicine, there's a, a recommended you read a, an excellent paper from UBC, Ortoff et al., from 2013, which is Perceptions of Cannabis as a Stigmatized Medicine. And this is the situation that people find themselves in where they prescribe a whole host of medical products, prescription products, and they have no problems with their family at all. As soon as they mention that they've been prescribed cannabis, families and friends seem to lose their heads about it. It's suddenly like, oh my goodness, you know, we're okay, you're having fentanyl, Percocet, and Dilonin, and Oxycontin, they're all okay, but as soon as you say cannabis, it's a different, different uh, perception of it. As I said, there will be a Q&A at the end. What I'd like to do now is just to gauge your knowledge and perspective. So I've got six questions for you, please, if you wouldn't mind just working with me on this. Um, you know, the uh, has got a friend here recording the presentation, but uh, I don't think there are any cameras in here, so whatever happens in this room stays within this room. <laughs> okay, how many of you please, with a show of hands, support medical access for patients? Okay, thank you. So is there anybody that wouldn't support it? Okay, that's good. And how many would support legalization, please? Again, anybody, thank you, anybody who would, that wouldn't support legalization? Okay, so I'm somewhat preaching to the converted here. I'm very aware there could be people in here who know a lot more about this subject than I do. And you'd be willing to be honest with me, how many of you have ever tried cannabis? <laughs> Okay, has anybody not tried cannabis? Okay, half a dozen, eight, eight, eight to nine. Okay. Do we have any, if, if you're willing to tell me, is anybody here a current cannabis patient? Not recreational, but a patient. Yeah, well, thank you, Joanne. Thank you for being honest. I, I use Uses it soon. Okay, I'll come to that. That's actually what you mentioned. Uh, do we have any recreational users here? Okay, about a third of the room. That's interesting. Thank you. How many of you have got cannabinoids? The cannabinoids are the, um, the components within cannabis. How many of you have cannabinoids within your system right now? The cannabinoid is a compound that uh, uh, occurs in, um, within the cannabis plant, that you should all have your hands up. Because every one of you in this room has cannabinoids in your body. Are you endogenous cannabinoids, or are they... Endogenous. Endogenous. Oh, yeah, we all, we all have them. Absolutely, we all have them within our body. You will, I'll come to that in a moment. Okay, so what I want to try and do, I don't think I have to do it necessarily with this audience, uh, that I do with some groups I talk to is 
change the perception. As you see here, there's a lot of there's a lot of humour involved with this, and I'm not saying humour is a bad thing. Maybe laughter is the best medicine. Um, but there's a perception. It's to do with law enforcement. It's to do with guys with hoodies on or dreadlocks or people just smoking recreational recreationally. Or there are a lot of jokes. And there's a lot of humour used with it. Um, what I'd like to do is, and the words that I've put down there, the, the negative words and negative connotations of dependency, addiction, abuse, and gateway. So I want to just maybe shift that a little. I'd like you to start thinking about this as, as a medicine for the moment. Um, it is being increasingly prescribed across Canada. There are many thousands of doctors now prescribing this. And as they realize it, and many of them tell me this personally because I work with education with doctors, once they've been through the process and they've left their preconceptions at the door, it changes their medical practice and it changes their prescribed value. So maybe we can use words like wellness, essential, consciousness, and harm reduction. On the harm reduction, I should add, cannabis is widely used here in Vancouver, but inside. I don't know if you know Dr. Edward Woods. Dr. Edward was uh, wonderful. One of the journalists, he explained to me they can take somebody who is severely addicted to some of the most horrific products on the planet, but they can then um, replace that with cannabis. They might be giving them a lot of cannabis, they could be stoned out of their head, but they're in a better place than they were yesterday. Previously, they were going to die, now they're not going to. Okay, a little of my history. I'll explain how I ended up doing this because I'm, I'm not. I don't have a ponytail, I don't have a tie-dye t-shirt, I'm not from Tofino, I don't surf. I spent, I'm originally from the UK, I spent 23 years in uniform, I was in the Royal Air Force, I left as a senior officer in uh, 2002, simply as I wanted to be in Canada. Uh, I came with a wife and two daughters, as I'll explain. But uh, my background, my professional background is stellar, no, no exposure to narcotics or cannabis or anything else I've ever shown before. Is that you? That's me on the left. So that's me on the left. That's me, if you can see the, you can see the uh, English uh, countryside below me. That's me at 8,000 feet above the English countryside, oh, at the wow. back of the Hercules. And you're not wearing a parachute? No, I wasn't planning on jumping out. You can see I am, I am wearing a, a, a restraint harness around my, I mean, as you can see, if I could step back a foot, or certainly this end, straight off the ramp, you go straight off the back. So we were just, we were doing parachute drops. So we are taking, uh, dropping powers out. Is that you in the middle? And that's me on the right-hand side with a moustache, with a, with a lady in red, I can't remember what her name is, but some of you might recognize her. That's it. Okay, so I, I worked, I suppose you could say I worked for her, I flown with her, uh, I was trusted by the British government to fly with everything from uh, nuclear weapons to bombs to the Queen. So I, I was trusted by somebody, and indeed, while I was in Canada, I used to work for a company not far away from here called McDonald Deadweiler. I worked for them for four years as a project manager. I held a top secret security clearance with CSIS, visiting what I did for half the national defense. So, as I said, I'm not your stereotypical person standing up here saying, let's all go outside and have a job. In 2002, as I said, I came to Canada with a wife and two daughters. Uh, that photograph was taken in August 2005 at Fernie. And uh, the week after that photograph, my wife in the foreground was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was living in Alberta at the time. She was 41 years old. 
Um, I regret to inform you, um, she died in 2009 at Peace Arch Hospital in White Rock, mm. age 46, after four years of treatment. That was her six months after she started treatment. She had uh, surgery, she had a right breast removed, she had radiation, she made all her hair fall out, she had chemotherapy that made her things are completely into that as well. Um, unfortunately, the story gets a little bit worse. My eldest daughter, front there, front left, Beth, two weeks before my wife died, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. 24th of October, sorry, 24th of November 2009. It's a date that's burnt into my memory, as you can probably imagine. It was Beth's journey. She had um, five brain surgeries here at Children's Hospital under the wonderful Dr. Douglas Cochrane. She was treated very well there, but it was her treatment that had changed when she was prescribed medical marijuana that really made me think I had to change my perception of this. Beth started taking cannabis in 2011. For those of you that are familiar with it, with this audience who might be more comfortable or appropriate, it was actually the 20th of April 2011, or 4.20. My naivety at the time was, and I told her that she should consider taking and start taking it regularly. She said, you know what today's date is? And I said, you aren't. And she said, you're 20. And I said, so? She said, get with the program, Dad. You know? <laughs> 420 is a famous day. I had no idea what it meant at that stage. That's just less than five years ago. Beth took cannabis for 18 months as in a derivatized form as an oil. She had... MRIs done at children's every three months. They were clear that she'd been told, or we had the literature for this, that says her treatment was palliative in nature at that stage. She had likely four to six months of life expectancy. 18 months later, with 18 months of clear MRIs, she decided she wasn't going to take care of this anymore. She, uh, the gentleman in the room will appreciate this. It's always hard, hard arguing with a woman. It's even harder arguing with a teenage girl when she's her own daughter. She but she said she wasn't taking it anymore. She said, it's my body, I've got this thing for me, so I'm not going to take it. She started at UBC in September. She had a fantastic few months as a dream to go with her, with her educated. Uh, two months after that photograph was taken, the tumour occurred, and she died uh, a little under 12 months later. She died on the 25th of October, 2013. Age 20 years old. Okay, so that's how I ended up doing this. I didn't expect to be doing this. I left it at McDonald's and I ended up doing what I'm doing. Okay, cannabis history. Um, a brief overview here. It's been used, uh, recorded uh, use in Taiwan um, over 10,000 years ago. It's likely that it's the first ever crop that was ever grown um, productively by man. The medical use has been recorded in China. There's a friend of mine, a doctor, you'll see later on this, who was actually asked to go to China to verify what they found in the cave in China was, what they thought it was, and indeed it was. It was cannabis that was 5,000 years old. It was in a shaman's pack. He had seeds, he had resin, he had various other things, and they tested it, and it was uh, as unavailable today, almost as it was 5,000 years ago, in a 
temperature and light control condition in this cave for 5,000 years. Great. History goes back a long way. And then finally, on the slide, we have up to 1937, when the Americans brought in prohibition, there were over 2,000 medicines that contained cannabis. That was about uh, a little under 30%, so approaching a third of all the medicines in the USA that US pharmacopoeia had cannabis within them. It was widely used. There were even cigarettes for, cannabis cannabis for asthma. I'm not saying that's correct, but that's, the, that's how accepted it was. Okay, cannabis history continued. Um, in Canada, we've had a program since 2001. It's important to note, particularly for Craig and the politicians, the politicians have never led the way in this. This has been people power, this has been civil disobedience, this has been the government and the uh, regulators have been dragged to the point we're at now by ongoing court cases. Uh, this uh, program brought in in Canada came in 2001 after the Parker case back in 99, where they were basically told, the government were told, you have to have a program because it's a person's human right to do it. It's changed and gone through a number of forms in the last number of years, but uh, we, do have a, we do have a federal program, which most countries in the world do not. In the USA, there are 23 states now that have a medical program. However, in the USA, it is still federally illegal. So even if you're a patient here, you can go to Peace Arch Crossing to cross, drive over to Blaine, and you can go in, if you're over 21, you can go into a store at Blaine Beach and you can buy a joint. But you can't bring it back. And if you're asked at the border, why are you going to Blaine? If you say, I'm going to go to Blaine to go and get drunk in a bar, that's okay. You say you're going to go and buy a joint, you turn your vehicle around. It's called moral turpitude. No, it's okay. terms for these things. Moral turpitude means that you're admitting that you're going to go and commit a crime. A federal crime, not a state crime. In addition to those 23 states, you've got four US states Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska, plus the capital, Washington, DC, have legalized. You can now buy cannabis within the 400 meters of uh, Capitol Hill. So, Are you talking about the distinction between legalization and decriminalization? I'm not going to talk about that, but I will, come, I will discuss that afterwards if people want to ask about it. Questions about whether well, I'm going to discuss decriminalization or legalization, what the difference is. And there are further seven states this year, this being the federal election year in the US, the further seven states that are looking to uh, ballot initiatives this year for legalization. So we're in a changing environment. Um, this is a, an interesting article from The Economist magazine, hardly a not the left-wing trend magazine of, uh, of hippies, but where then you have a, an article that says that it would be hailed as a medical breakthrough. That was back in 2006. Its potential for treating everything from pain to cancer is, uh, is fairly impressive, as I'll come to as we go way through the presentation. Okay, and it's people like this, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Gupta is a neurosurgeon, so it'd be important he has the letters MD after his name, which means other doctors will listen to him. But he's what they call a KOL, or key opinion leader. And he says something is a good thing, other doctors listen. Now, um, in 2009, he wrote an article in Time magazine about why he disagreed with the legalization of cannabis and why he was not 
what the sensor is hitting within the cylinder. However, in 2013, he brought out a documentary on CNN. It's a 45 minute documentary that you can find, it's just called The Weed, nice easy time to deliver, uh, about why he changed his mind. And he then started doing the research. I don't know if you've seen any of you seen Weed, but it focuses a lot on some, uh, some families that I know, that I'm in communication with, uh, children with uh, severe epilepsy and various other medical diseases that were being costly impacted by the use of cannabis. But when somebody like him discusses it, the medical community and the wider population will listen. So now I'm going to talk about the endocannabinoid system. The endocannabinoid system is. Uh, there's uh, Marty Schumacher, correct? Marty, good morning. The endocannabinoid system was only discovered in 1988. It was only once that actually identified um, uh, THC was only discovered in the early 1960s by Dr. Raphael Schumann in, in um, Israel. But it was then the work that went on to see what is it actually doing within the body? And what is it impacting? How do the receptors work? The work is ongoing, but it is it's snowballing, it's gaining momentum. Um, so I say it was only discovered in 1988. There was an endocannabinoid system in all invertebrates, every dog, fish, cat, whale, horse, you name it, we all have an endocannabinoid system. That's a whole set of talking topic, but the most basic life form on the planet that has a central nervous system is the tummicate or sea squirt. And uh, we all, we all uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We all descended from that. Uh, we, we did. I don't believe that there's any science that shows that we were all created in, in the, second, the first day or the second day or the third day. It wasn't, wasn't that book that I had in my youth. But we all descended from the Tanakay. But it's in all, it's in all invertebrates. It is the largest neurotransmitter system in the human body, or in fact, in those animals' bodies. It's located in the brain called CB1 receptor in the brain, and then in the central and peripheral nervous systems, CB2 receptors. And it was summarized of what the effect it has, and this is good for Joanne, relax, eat, sleep, protect, and forget. The sleep one is what I think she's using it for. Forget one is an interesting one for me. Uh, I have friends that I've worked with in the military, we have PTSD, it happens with a lot of people. There's a significant number of veterans who actually have PTSD, and there are 22 deaths a day to suicide in the US with PTSD, which is not a great statistic. Um, but there are lots of people, paramedics, that are women and children and adults who've been traumatized by events that have happened in their youth. There are lots of people that need, uh, need to take something to help them forget. And uh, as I mentioned, the person who discovered THC he said to me a couple of years ago here in Vancouver, he said it's as important to forget some things as it is to remember other things. He said it's good if you can take a memory, put it in a box, and put it away. He said with PTSD, the box keeps opening itself. You don't decide when it opens, it just keeps doing it. Two o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake. He said that's not good. And that's one of the reasons why the Israelis, the Israeli Defense Force, they use cannabis widely. It's widely prescribed there. So the endocannabinoid system is a regulatory system that promotes homeostasis within the body, or balance. It's just looking to just regulate your physical condition. The ability to maintain stable internal conditions that are essential for survival. 
I've said to you before, you all have, we all have an endocannabinoid system, we all have cannabinoids within our body. As a side note, one of the richest sources of endocannabinoids, your body's producing all the time, but one of the richest sources is a mother's breast milk. It's why it's so important for a mother to breast milk. In fact, a doctor friend of mine said, you want to see a baby just after it's fed, it's had a really big feed, they look as if they're stoned. <laughs> He's a family physician. Yeah. He, might, he might be right. <laughs> and it is a crucial system for bioregulation. Um, this is a gentleman I was talking about before we went to uh, China, Dr. Ethan Russo. He's a neurologist down, uh, down in Seattle. And he describes it it's effectively, effectively regulates regulation. For physiological processes within the body. I guess my point here is to say this is a key, key component of the human physiology. So, what does it regulate? So I talked about sleep. I'm going to give you a little list. I'm going to give you a big list, and this is not the whole list. When you're looking at sleep, your temperature, your mood, your appetite, female reproductive cycles, your motor function, pain, your blood pressure, and your heart rate is regulated by the endocannabinoid system. When you start to look at it, you realize this is a really, really important condition, really important system. If I talk just briefly about temperature, one of the ways I like to explain it. Because the body's looking for homeostasis, it wants you in that range. You get too near the top, that's not good. You get too far down, that's not good. But if you go out at the top end of that, you start to sweat. It's not a conscious decision. You don't think I can now start sweating now. It just happens. Similarly, when you get too cold, you get friction, your skin shivers, and you get, um, get friction to generate heat. Both of those are examples of your endocannabinoid system working properly. People have things like talk and bad circulation, things like that. People are enhanced by enhancing their endocannabinoid system. So, got that big list there. I, I put it center at the bottom because the list goes on and on and on, but I took all down some of the big ones. But what's also, what sort of conditions can it impact? One of the grandfathers of this movement, I suppose you'd call it, of this consciousness is Dr. Todd Hero. Michael Ria, I do apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly, but he wasn't that as an American gentleman, psychiatrist, and he indicated 700 conditions. I have a list of those 700 conditions in a binder at the front if you want to look through if there's something in there. Don't be surprised if it isn't, because it tends to be an impact across a whole range of medical conditions. And as you can see, there's probably about 15 or so on that screen there. So, I'm now going to talk a little bit about risks. Okay, annual causes of death. These are global figures that I just pulled up in the last 48 hours. There are about a little over 6 million deaths a year in tobacco. Lung cancers and those other things. Is it just, this is global, these are global oh. figures. Yeah, they're not losing eight and a half million people a year after those two. I'll come to the US in just a moment. These are global figures. Who are your source? Uh, these are all off. Um, I'll have to come back to you on that, by the way. Who's your source? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then I have a question there, some of you already know the answer. How many overdoses of cannabis or deaths in cannabis are in a year? Zero. Well, no deaths. Yet, the, 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 uh, trust me that neither the, uh, in the States have tried repeatedly for the last 40 or 50 years to try and prove causative nature, but that is not. There's always another, another condition that goes on. It, it, uh, whereas there are millions of conditions, millions of people that have shown those conditions with, uh, with, these other, with alcohol and tobacco, which are both legal. This is just a light-hearted one. For the, this is for the States. This is, uh, I think it was Marty was asking there about the numbers. So it's about 435,000 within the US deaths with tobacco each year. And the joke is that it's safer than peanuts because it's um, deaths with peanuts each year. Interesting one with prescription drugs, 32,000 deaths. There's a death every 19 minutes in the USA from prescription drug taken correctly, taken as prescribed, but there's still a death every 19 minutes. That's a fairly horrific statistic. In fact, shopping is dangerous as well, it seems. There are four deaths and 74 injuries from shopping in the States. So avoid the US on Black Friday. Okay, other risks. I'm doing this as a, as a balance, and I'm just going to have up here, as I said, how many samples are not selling anything. Um, cannabis hyperemesis is a, um, a long-term, long-term heavy users. Uh, and it can cause nausea, vomiting, and crap. Uh, they need to be on, these are people smoking probably uh, 15 to 20 joints a day, and they've been doing it for years. So these are really heavy users. And if they do end up in this, the, the, the first thing to do is they stop smoking it, but then they put them in a hot shower, that causes some very quick uh, recovery from this. Then in a hot shower, and then they need to be inside. They suggest some sort of counseling. They have a dependency. They have a, um, a, not, a not a physical dependency, but they have a, an emotional um, dependency in this product, and it's caused them manifesting as a, as a, in, a, in a physical way, which is not good. But it should be should be counted. I've never met anybody with this, but it is known globally. It has been recorded as a as a condition. Uh, addiction addiction for cannabis is about nine percent. Addiction is a very poor blunt tool to make accessible whether it should be available either as a medicine or legally. Nine um, percent, to put it in context, is about the same as caffeine. When you have people who say they can't start the day without a coffee, there are people. Uh, that are, that are that. So it's about the same. It's about the same number. Nine percent. That's 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 why the available number. That's the uh, Columbia College. Look at the work of Dr. Carl Hart. He's one of the resident addiction specialists. Very present here. Okay. Addiction. I mentioned. Uh, is it a gateway drug? Um, that's one of the questions I get asked uh, by doctors, but by the general community. Um, if you look at countries that have more enlightened uh, jurisdictions, that have more enlightened regulations, so like, I suppose you'd say Colorado and uh, Washington, or Holland, or Portugal, uh, they have not seen, there's not, there's not a correlation with being a gateway to anything else. It's, it's, it's no more gateway than it is that you have a glass of wine, you will become an alcoholic. Um, if you're of an addictive nature, then uh, you could progress to that, but it's not, not, not certainly not causing it. Um, one of the ones is uh, the last about psychosis and uh, schizophrenia. Same thing. Youth should not use this. Um, there's two different, depending um, where you want to read. Uh, they said the, the young brain shouldn't be exposed to this 
the College of Physicians and Surgeons in the C-section we prescribed everybody under the age of 25. Um, and, you know, just trying to be uh, over-cautious, as you might expect as a regulatory body. Um, but they, they say it's probably around 23, 24 years when the, uh, the frontal lobes are fully formed in the brain. Uh, that's what we should be avoiding that impact. However, there's other schools of thought and other researchers where they're saying that they want children to avoid it before 15 or 16. So similar sort of things that we want children drinking, having alcohol, you know, sort of, uh, uh, cigarettes, and we recommend cigarettes full stop, but certainly with alcohol, I, mean, I don't have a problem with a young adult having a glass of wine or beer. It needs to be sensible and educated decision making. That's the most I mentioned about use as well. I would not be recommending it to children. Certainly not recreation. Other, you can bring that up in the question and answer that you want to discuss any other risks. Um, one of my one of my heroes, Dr. Carl Sagan, said the illegality of cannabis is outrageous. An impediment to the full utilization of a drug which helps produce the serenity and insight, sensitivity and fellowship so desperately needed in this increasingly mad and dangerous world. He was he was quite an intelligent man actually. I love it. He's a great one. He says, yeah, I'm going to listen. That's an administration. Okay, the most famous one that everybody knows. Uh, you can probably, between you, you probably list them all. I'm just going to run through them quickly for anybody who doesn't know. Smoking, vaporizing, which is uh, increasingly recommended by doctors, and it's a quick, quick impact, a quick impact for a person. And it saves money over smoke. Chocolate applications, these are quite widely available in. Vancouver, cells um, that can be applied to people with skin conditions or with things like arthritis, people with arthritic joints, they apply these and they work very, very well. Or rubicosal. Rubicosal is just sort of sprayed with it now for buckle administration. It means that it's, how it's getting into your body is different. It's absorbed through the cheeks or under the tongue. Uh, the absorption into the body is different. It doesn't go first past the metabolism, which means it doesn't go through the your, your stomach and your uh, One of the most famous um, medications or cannabis medications is something called Sativex, which is made in the UK and that is a Rolling Coast spray. That is licensed in Canada for cancer pain and multiple sclerosis. Edibles, which are fairly famous, they were famous in Vancouver, but in the City Hall have said they can't sell evidence anymore, but if you need them, that doesn't mean people are going to go to Victoria by the mayor. So the Victoria dispensaries, of which there are over 25, they, they do sell evidence. And I think, because we think the city this is a bit tricky, it's a very easy way for people to take it. You don't want to make eyes or smoke, you've got the time to do it. The uh, impact on the body is different. Rectal and vaginal uh, suppositories or pessaries are very, very uh, effective medical administration and for different conditions. Uh, in the States, they can buy transdermal patches, so like nicotine patches that you put on for slow release over an extended period, they can be quite, quite effective. And on a footnote there, each route that I show you on each route of administration has a different time of onset, duration, effect, and effect quality. Okay, and I'm going to ask you a, bit, you get a voting question here. Um, which of those routes do you think has the fastest impact on the human body? So, vaporizer, how many, how many for smoking? Two. Um, 
how many for vaporization? Well, those two are the same, they're both in fact in the round, look at the round a minute, maybe to 90 seconds. Okay, anything for uh, topical? No? Or a mucosal? Edible? Edibles between 30 minutes and a couple of hours. That's what I usually say. People are going to try and eat something that take a bite and wait an hour and they say this isn't working and then take another piece. <laughs> and you get both of uh, Rectal vaginal? Two hours up there. And transdermal. Okay, transdermal is very, very similar to the, uh, the topical. The top of the, I can go correct, is rectal. Absorption through the GI tract is faster than an IV line. It's very, very quick. It's also, there's another side effect, the majority of people, like 9 out of 10, don't get high from it. So you take quite large amounts of THC for treating conditions. Uh, you're helping with the pain, but you're not getting high. Because it doesn't, again, doesn't go first pass through your stomach and your liver. The impact of the body is different. Here's another blind gentleman. And, uh, in this audience, I don't have to uh, about consciousness and about uh, you will be people with free thinkers, which is something a bit sort of a lot easier to talk about. Okay, I'm going to leave you on a high now. <laughs> this is for your own research. If you've got a condition or you know somebody, uh, maybe you've got a doctor that doesn't know anything about it or you want to understand more about it, I would say Google, Google cannabis and what the condition is. PubMed, which is the US National Medical Library, has over 14, I Googled this, there are over 14,000 articles. If you've just gone to PubMed, there are 14,000 peer-reviewed papers from around the world about cannabis. This is not quackery, this is not some fringe science, this is serious, PubMed is a serious, uh, serious uh, organization. Uh, same with the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. Those are two, uh, if you find things, I don't recommend people to go to Pothead Weekly or High Times or something like that. Look at the, the, uh, the good stuff and make a call on whether it's something that, uh, uh, that could benefit your condition or a friend or family member's condition. Okay, I'm going to talk about a bit of scientific research that's going on. The Arthritis Society have done a complete about face on this. Three years ago, they would not discuss it. If you called them or if you looked on their website, there was no mention of it at all. In December, I was invited to attend a Cannabis Research Roundtable. Oh, so the first thing they did in September last year, they bought out a position paper. They have now offered a guide. If you go to the Arthritis Society's website, you'll find a guide. Um, in December, I was with the president, Jenny Yale, and another well, 50 doctors and researchers from across Canada, from SFU, from UDC, from Dalhousie, from McGill, all the way across here talking about this. And this is it's accelerated, the work is accelerating, and they're putting on a lot of money behind it because they realize how important it is. And that was, the, uh, that was the round table I was talking about. That was in December, 2nd and 3rd of December last year. So things are changing, but if you've got a group like this, like the arthritis society, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of great impetus to make this research happen. But it's also going on down in, uh, sorry, sorry uh, oh, also in the States. Cannabis Education, the Brain Tumor Foundation of Canada, uh, four years ago, I phoned the Brain Tumor Foundation because my daughter was uh, still going through the trouble when I first started learning about cannabis, and they would not have any discussion about it, which was, it was not to happen. They said, We don't have a position on that, we have nothing on our website, and uh, 
Please stop calling us and asking us. I don't prefer the ones, but that's the response. However, there's a sea change there. They're doing a series of talks across Canada this year. And uh, if you're interested, this is not an open invitation, it's for the medical community, but it's being done here. The talks of medical, uh, this one, Canada said cancer care is being presented at 29th of April at the Royal Columbia by Dr. Pippa Hawley from the BC Cancer Agency. Now, even the BC Cancer Agency had a sea change in perspective that uh, she described to me. She said it's pushing against open door here. Once the, once the door's opened, they realised so many patients were using it and so many people were having positive impacts of their cancer. Uh, all the other doctors, the doctor started talking and she said it's now a done deal. She said it's uh, moved on a long way. Uh, and then down south of the border, below the 49th, which is a much more challenging environment. But in the National Cancer Institute, back in 2011, had a, a position out that they begrudgingly accepted there were certain things where it could be useful for cancer with uh, nausea and pain. But that changed uh, in, in the last few months. They now have a cannabis and cannabinoids for health professionals advice on their website. And this is a significant change for the big organisation. So things are, things are shifting. Okay, now I have a conspiracy theory for you to, to, to think about. This is something I printed, you'll see the date, 31st of March 2011. I printed this from Wikipedia, the Google Glioma. And Glioma, there was this section all about THC, about work that experts are doing both in Spain at the University of Complutense in Madrid, but also at the uh, Pacific Medical Center at the University of California. And uh, one of the quotes there, many experts now believe cannabinoids may represent the new class of anti-cancer drugs that retard cancer growth, inhibit angiogenesis, that just means blood supply, and metastatic spread of cancer cells. They're fairly impressive endorsements. That was, I say, 31st of March 2011. On the table over there, I have, there it looks now, that whole section has gone no longer exists on Wikipedia. So, who might not want this information out there? I suggest to you there may be a few. So there was a failed ballot initiative 71 in Florida, and the uh, US News World Report indicated that law enforcement, the Florida Sheriff's Association, there are people where their jobs, all they've ever done is law enforcement is bust people for smoking joint. And they've got dogs that work with them, and they, it's all they've ever done. Their whole career is based around that. You certainly tell them you now got to go to fraud or getting out traffic tickets or something else. It's a, it's a challenge for them. They're planning on putting their kids through school based on that. Drug testing companies, and that's increasingly evident in the States. People say, well, if somebody's on um, Social Security, they should be drug tested to check they're not taking any sort of drugs. They did the same in the, the Senate, but get a different response. Big pharmaceutical, that is not particularly keen on medical marijuana because it replaces a huge number of pharmaceutical drugs. Big tobacco, likewise. The alcohol industry, interestingly, the, the alcohol industry was the single biggest financial supporter of the no vote in Oregon four years ago. So two years ago, it got in, but the alcohol industry funded the no vote. Prison industrial complex, they had a very nice set up thing where they just generate more, more prisons. Drug Free Florida, which was the organization that, that opposed Initiative 71, uh, was funded by the, the businesses above. So there's a, there's a 
So I just there's a momentum block to 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 block the vote. Um, now in the USA, cannabis is a Schedule One drug. There are five schedules. But Schedule One, as you can see there, says it's a drug with high potential for abuse and no currently accepted medical use, and it remains a Schedule One drug. That is the single biggest impediment to research in the USA. It's crazy, you know, it's, it's just ludicrous. Okay, meanwhile, we'll go down to Schedule 2 drugs. Schedule 2 drugs in the States, the morphine, fentanyl, methadone, oxycodone, we've got some big problems with these drugs. There is, a current, there is an accepted medical use and treatment, I love the way they say, in the United States, as if you're a human body in the, human, in the United States, and the effect of medical is different than any, anywhere else in the world. Or a, uh, there was a currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions. But we've, not, we've only got down to Schedule 2 so far. We've got down to Schedule, I'm dropping down to Schedule 4. Schedule 4 includes the benzos, the benzodiazepines, barbiturates, opioid analgesics. These are fairly, fairly strong ones down to Schedule 4. They've got low potential for abuse relative to the ones above them, and it, but it has got a currently accepted medical use. So that's the, we're down to 4 now, and they're still. Cannabis is more harmful than all of these, apparently. Use of the drug may lead to limited physical dependence or psychological dependence. Again, we're down to four. And I don't know how clear that is to you, but I'll read it out to you. That's Dr. Sanjay Gupta talking about this. He said, I mistakenly believe that the Drug Enforcement Administration must have quality reasoning as to why marijuana is in the category of the most dangerous drug that have no accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. They didn't have the science to support that claim, and I now know that when it comes to marijuana, neither of these things are true. And finally, my last slide, US patent 6630507, cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotectants. Um, and that's another thing I can look about with things like Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Parkinson's. This has a significant role that they can play with those, because it's a neuroprotectant. Well, neurodegenerative is neurogenerative, but I've actually shown work down in the States. It's Madison, Wisconsin, they're doing work on that, and they're showing that there's benefits for it. Um, that was, that, so, Pat was awarded 7th of October 2003. Does anybody know who owns that patent? US Department of Health and Human Services. This is a Schedule 1 drug that has no medical benefit. Strange. That's why I said this is a conspiracy theory. Why is that the case? If you would like to help us produce this podcast and to make better recordings in the future, email info at bchumanist.ca.